We're back with Civil Action. This is Brian Kabatek and Shant Karnikian coming to you today. We're at the Kabatek Law Firm in Los Angeles, KBK for short. I'm here with my uh, compadre, my my assistant, my helper, Shant Karnikian. I like how my title keeps changing. Um, what would you try? You like at some point you called me your little helper, my, you're which my is little a step man. above an elf. Yeah, step above an elf. Which, you know, we're about the same height, so I don't think that's a fair characterization. Shot, where can people find us? People can find us at kbklawyers.com or on all social media at Cabotech LLP. Uh, they can find this podcast anywhere they listen to podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And they can rate us, subscribe to us, leave us some feedback. Rate us high. Or, or low in your case. Or they could submit their questions or, and more importantly, their complaints about you. No one has any complaints about me as far as I know. Well, that's not the feedback we've been getting, but maybe people are hiding it from you because you write their paychecks. Um, Anyway, today we have a set of interesting cases. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to cover a couple of kind of companion cases, both arising out of uh, discrimination complaints against a hospital. Then we're going to talk about a landowner's duty to exercise reasonable care when it comes to discovering uh, criminal activity on his property. Then fourth, we're going to talk about a uh, case that deals with the waiver of the right to arbitrate and uh, interesting set of facts over there, but a great federal case for everyone that deals with that issue. Next, we're going to talk about uh, forum selection clauses and another great case um, for us from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. And lastly, um, or before last, we're going to talk about penultimate. The penultimate, which which is second to last, a fancy way of uh, people to say second to last. We're going to talk about the five-year rule and how important it is and how it has jurisdictional deadlines that you cannot mess with. And lastly, we're going to talk about class action uh, that has to do with the... Uh, that ins- stupid insurance you buy yeah. when you go to a rental car agency. That they offer. I don't know. Fortune. I don't know. Do you buy it? I don't buy it. No. I like to live life on the edge. No, you have insurance. Your 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 car insurance covers your. Never in all mind. seriousness, never that's, mind. that's right. Yeah. All right, Sean. Let's jump in. Let's start okay. talking about the Galvin and the Ortiz cases. These are a couple of companion cases. Yeah, we're going to talk about them together because they're effectively the same set of facts. You have the same offender in both cases. They're both against the Dameron Hospital Association, which operates a hospital, I believe, somewhere up north. That's now part of the UC Davis. Uh, medical system. You know, and usually it's our, our policy to try to be somewhat neutral here, but this hospital sounds like one incredibly unhappy place to work. Yeah, you have. So the the plaintiffs here are Shirley Galvin and Nancy Ortiz. And apparently and, like six or seven other people who were effectively nursing supervisors at the, at the hospital. And somebody came in to the, um, somebody named Alvarez came to the hospital sometime in the middle of 2011 and believes that it was her job to clean house and to particularly single out unit coordinators who spoke English as a second language. So, Sean, let's go through a, a couple of these choice facts that came out of the case. Oh, my God. There, it, first of all, the plaintiffs here are suing for employment discrimination effectively. So various causes of action ranging from discrimination and harassment, wrongful termination, uh, deck relief for the discrimination, injunctive relief, 
constructive termination. But the words that this uh, Doreen Alvarez, who was the supervisor, allegedly, uh, let's say allegedly, yeah, sure, I guess they're allegations. Um, but but just terrible things. So she starts one of the, the the opinions start out with highlighting the fact that Doreen Alvarez said that I don't know how Dameron, the defendant, the hospital, gets you guys. Your accents are thick. You don't know what you're doing. My young son can write better than you. Uh, those of you with a thick accent, those of you who cannot speak English, need to go back to school and learn how to read and write grammar. I don't think that's a proper phase. I and she phrase. introduced a new, a, a new unit coordinator who happened to be Anglo and said she speaks good English. She's well-educated. She's going to do a better job than most of you guys here because you guys don't even know how to speak English. There's another supervisor who testified that uh, Alvarez's criticisms of the Filipino unit coordinators were ongoing and constant. So there's really no dispute here that she Alvarez also believed that the this. Filipino unit um, administrators or coordinators were too old and had been here too long, which is apparently true because one of the plaintiffs had spent like her entire adult life. She was in her 50s, which I consider to be young. And had spent her entire adult life working at that hospital. That's old. She was on her way out, I guess. No, but but, but in all seriousness, yeah, this person had worked there her whole life. These are qualified people. They're registered nurses, a lot of them, by by trade and profession. They're certified to do what they do. And it looks like this Alvarez person had, A, a vendetta against uh, people of Filipino origin. But but, but she she kind of, you know, she she shares her hatred uh, equally. There's some point. And the employees were constantly reporting about her conduct to uh, the the supervisors, the managers at the hospital. And um, in at least one of these cases, people resigned. Other cases, they were fired. They were fired for pretextual reasons. At least that's what they said. And believe it or not, what did the trial court the do? Stutter, what, did the, what did the trial court threw do? Threw every single one of these cases out on summary judgment, saying that as a matter of law, there was no discriminatory practices that took place at this hospital. And and every now and then, I am stunned when a trial court does something like this, and it looks like the Court of Appeal was equally stunned. The words that the trial court used was that Galvin, or the plaintiff here, has not shown that her employer knew about Alvarez's actions and failed to remedy them, and therefore Galvin cannot establish she was constructively term- terminated and therefore sub- uh, suffered an adverse employment action. Right. So, so they, they hung their hat on that. The trial court said, well, because the employer had no idea that Alvarez was doing this, you can't do anything to uh, to, to the employer about this. And, and the the Court of Appeal, the third DCA, by the way, found without much difficulty that there was sufficient evidence to allow a reasonable trier of fact to find that, that Alvarez acted in a discriminatory manner. There was evidence that um, the person was subject to severe and pervasive treatment. There was evidence that a reasonable trier of fact concluded that the conduct was motivated by national origin and race, and it goes on and on and on here. So I think that one of the takeaways from this case is um, – pick the right judge, or at least pray to God you get the right judge. The other, though, and this is the interesting part of the case, at least from um, a legal standpoint, is ultimately the trial court reinstated the case in its entirety except punitive damages. You mean the the appellate court? 
the appellate court. Yeah. yeah and why didn't it. they? Why didn't they um, reinstate punitive damages? Because in order to show punitive damages, you have to show that the conduct that's fraudulent, oppressive, or with malice is being done by uh, someone that's a managing agent of the defendant, or the conduct is ratified by the defendant. Yeah. And had, here, the, did the employer have advanced knowledge? Of the conduct. And it really, I mean, even that I looked at this and I thought, gosh, you know, I would have given Yeah, that that's even plaintiff. a close call here based on these set of facts. But but you know, ultimately the Court of Appeals said, no, there isn't evidence of that. There's evidence that the, uh, that the employer should have known about this conduct or that the conduct was known of by people who represent the employer, including supervisory employees. And that's from a case called Turner. That's why they reinstated it. But for the same reason, because the employer, there was no proof that the employer knew of the conduct. So they said there's no ratification, there's no actions by managing agents, so they threw out the punitive damages. You always have to be able to tie the conduct to something that the managing agents did. And here, the the Court of Appeal found that there was no conclusive evidence that any of the wrongdoers were managing agents of the defendant hospital, and thus they can't be held liable. I don't agree with it. I think that's wrong. I think there was certainly evidence here, or at least the plaintiff should have been given another opportunity to produce evidence to de- make that demonstration. Now, the last thing I'll say about this case is what I found extremely interesting, and you don't see this in appellate cases very often, coming at least out of the um, uh, out of the Court of Appeal of the State of California, because of those of you that don't know, when a case comes back, you generally have a, a renewed 170.6 But here the court went so far to say that in light of our rulings in this and several other appeals by former nursing employees of this hospital who reported directly to Alvarez, we further direct the trial court to reassign this matter to a different judge. You don't see that very often. I've never seen that. And, and we've been doing this a lot and reading a lot of cases for this podcast or as you know, part of what we do. Never seen that. Now talk about Taylor Williams versus Fremont Corners. Right. And this is coming out of the 6th Appellate District, recently came down, I think, in July. And it has to do with a landowner's duty to exercise reasonable care to discover that criminal acts are being committed on his premises. Tough. These are tough cases. We've handled these. We've seen these get out on MSJ, and they're very tough cases. So uh, here, Mr. Taylor sues Fremont Corners Shopping Center. So the case, by the way, is Taylor... Williams. I said it. I said oh, Fremont this. Corners. Don't okay. you listen to anything I, don't listen I ever to, say? No, no, that's intentionally. Uh, I try to disregard everything you say. So Mr. Taylor sues Fremont Corner Shopping Center for negligence and premises liability because at some point uh, when Mr. Taylor, after he had attended a concert or actually performed in a concert at the Peacock Lounge at the uh, Fremont Corners Shopping Plaza. Have you been there? I have not. Have you been to the Peacock Lounge, Brian? Nope. Nope. No. Okay. Sounds like a place you'd like hang a out at. Cool scene. Yeah, we're going to go check it out sometime soon. I'm going to look it up. But apparently, this poor guy's a musician. He's performing there, and he comes out one night after his gig. That's that's music language. That's music language. Right. Yeah. yeah. And gets a uh, sucker punched. And he, he gets sucker punched trying to stop a fight. So I feel even worse for him. He's not even in the fight. Some somebody start some starts some trouble with someone, you know, take urinating outside, and they get into a fight. He tries to stop him. He gets punched in the face. So so, so one thing we have to start with is understanding that the general rule is that a landowner doesn't have a particular duty to protect others from conduct of third parties that occur on his or her or its land. 
and that the duty of maintenance or the duty to maintain property doesn't extend this far unless there is a special relationship and unless there is special notice. Right. And the only time that uh, a uh, landowner has a duty uh, to prevent or control the, the wrongful acts of a third party is when such conduct can be reasonably anticipated. So that's the standard here. Right, and there's a long line of cases, including a, United, a California Supreme Court case called Ann M, um, that talks yep. about the rule, that talks about the difficult standard, and it is a very difficult standard. And ultimately, what they were talking about in these cases is, are they on notice of a specific issue or a specific problem, and then they fail to protect against it? Yeah. And here, uh, the court found, and as they often do in a lot of these types of cases, where it involves the actions of a third party, especially a criminal action, they found that there isn't enough. Um, But they did have some evidence, right? So there was evidence that the police department had um, talked about additional security or had asked for security um, footage. There was knowledge of other prior criminal conduct, but it wasn't the exact same criminal conduct. There was some information about what was going on at the property, but there wasn't specific knowledge of it being violent type of criminal conduct. And the question ultimately comes is how foreseeable is the conduct? Right. And here the the Court of Appeal said that, look, we agree that the evidence in the case shows that the manager of the uh, plaza was aware of the possibility of fights erupting at or near the bar, but general knowledge of a possibility of criminal conduct is not enough in and of itself to create a duty under California law. I think that's right, and I think that hits it right on the head, is that the mere possibility isn't enough. The fact that they had been told or suggested that they have additional lighting or additional security cameras wasn't the fact that they knew that there were um, there were specific problems here. Now, I, I think this is a very tight standard, and I think that um, it'll be interesting to see when, whether or not the, the Supreme Court accepts review in this case, although I don't think these are the best facts. But we, you said earlier we have had other cases like this, some successful, some not successful, because the heightened standard for foreseeability is so difficult to reach. It's almost like there has to be the same exact type of criminal conduct that took place. Yeah, and these facts don't meet it. I don't like the outcome, but... Unfortunately, that's that's the rule. All right. Next, we're going to talk about a case coming from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, Newworth versus AG Senior Communities. I will not make any jokes about whether or not Brian lives in this specific community. Um, so what happened here is a number of residents at the senior community filed a class action complaint against uh, Aegis Senior Communities, LLC. What was their complaint about? Um, they were complaining that there was some scheme to defraud seniors by uh, representing that staffing levels are determined based on the needs of the residents when, in fact, the staffing was based on uh, budget considerations. So that's pretty, uh, I think, pretty devious. They were representing that you know, they would probably provide enough staff depending on the needs of the people there, but they weren't really doing that. All right. So the class representatives files this action. This, this by the way, is an appeal Um, from the United States District Court for the Northern District of California. And, of course, they – the defendant in this case does what all good defendants do in 2019 
and and forward going forward with just to file a motion to compel arbitration. So that's what they did. They they got the lawsuit was filed in April of 2016. In July 2016, the defendant files a well removes the complaint, files a motion to dismiss, and files a motion to compel arbitration at the same time. But then uh, by September of 2016, uh, the defendant withdraws its motion to compel arbitration because there's a new, new amended complaint filed. And at some point after that, they file another motion to dismiss. Only the motion to dismiss for now. Right. They That's, do not they do what they did before. They don't right. currently file a motion to compel arbitration. So over the next 11 months, when that motion to dismiss is, while that motion to dismiss is pending, they engage in discovery. Uh, they, they do a number of things that have to do presumably with the merits of the case. But the most significant thing they do is they have their motion to dismiss pending. So the motion to dismiss the is briefed. Time. It's fully briefed, and like so many federal district court judges today who are undoubtedly overworked, uh, it sits there with no response. So there's no response from the court. There's no ruling on it. They continue to litigate the case. Finally, in May of 2017, the district court denies the motion to dismiss. So what does the defendant do here in September of 2017, Brian? Like they're holding it in their back pocket, files a motion to compel arbitration. Okay, so now they've got a motion to compel arbitration. They bring the motion to compel and the district court denied the motion to compel arbitration on the grounds that the defendant had waived its right to arbitrate. So here's where we get into a discussion about the waiver of the right to arbitrate. You can waive the right to arbitrate by doing something affirmative, even if you don't actually waive the right to arbitrate. So you don't have to agree that you're waiving the right to arbitrate. It can be your specific conduct. And it's a high standard. There, there's case law that says that the law doesn't favor waiver particularly waiver of the right to arbitrate. So it's a heavy burden of proof. So the first thing the the defendant does in this case is it argues that it never expressly waived. But the court says you don't have to expressly waive. You can waive by conduct or by failure to do something, right? Yep. Secondly, the defendant argues that its initial filing of motion to compel arbitration was enough to put everybody on notice of their right to arbitrate or they were going to arbitrate. And the court says no. You have to actually pursue that motion. You can't file it, withdraw it, and then hold it in your back pocket to later. And then third, the, the defendant said, hey, we only engaged in a, in a minimum amount of litigation activity during that 11 months. And there is where I think the interesting part of this opinion is. The Court of Appeals says, the Ninth Circuit says, look, if it were just discovery, that might not be enough in and of itself to waive your right to arbitrate because you're going to have to do that discovery anyways. But here they said that you filed the motion to compel. And the, and the plaintiff here spent resources on opposing, uh, opposing that, uh, well, the motion to dismiss, not just a motion to compel arbitration. And the plaintiff spent resources and money uh, opposing that motion on the merits, on the motion to dismiss, and therefore that the plaintiff was prejudiced because the th- three elements of arguing waiver of right to arbitration are, one, knowledge of an existing right to compel arbitration. We have that here. There's no dispute about it. Two, intentional acts inconsistent with that existing right, and that's what Brian talked about, withdrawing your motion to compel arbitration, filing another motion while not having the motion to compel arbitration pending, and three, prejudice to the person opposing arbitration uh, from such inconsistent acts. So the fact that plaintiff had to oppose the substantive motion to dismiss goes to that third third element. So all three of these elements are met. Um, the uh, trial court was correct. The district court was correct in throwing out uh, the motion to compel arbitration. And, and I think that 
Sean, it isn't just enough in a case like this that the um, discovery, as the court said, could have been done in arbitration. That in and of itself wouldn't have been enough. I think there are plenty of cases where you just can't hold your uh, motion to compel arbitration in your back pocket. So advice for anyone who wants to compel arbitration is do it early, do it often, and get your motion out there. And on the other hand, if you're trying to oppose a motion to compel arbitration like we often do, is um, try to lure the defendant into litigating the case in the court forum because that's going to establish that um, that they you've been prejudiced and that they've taken unfair advantage and that what they really try to do and I mean I think this is what they did in this case too is is this is like a, a whole card you know you only need to play it if something goes bad so here they waited to see what was going to happen on their motion to dismiss when the motion to dismiss was uh, denied or overruled they pulled this out. Let's stay in the Ninth Circuit. This time we're going to take a trip to Idaho, but I think it doesn't matter because I think it's equally apropos for all of us who deal with forum selection clauses and contracts or agreements or a motion uh, based upon forum non-convenes. That's Latin. And this case is called you Gemini. Latin? I, C. C. Okay. Uh, Gemini Technologies versus Smith & Wesson Corporation. And what does Gemini manufacture, Brian? Gemini Technologies, which was purchased by Smith & Wesson, manufactures silencers for guns, which I didn't think were illegal. Me too, yeah. I don't own any or you guns. Thought they, you, you didn't think they were legal, yeah. I didn't think they were legal. Yeah. I thought they were illegal. Yeah, yeah. And apparently you can own a silencer, so that's one thing you can take away from um, this podcast today. The next thing you can take away, though, is that, that uh, we have a case here with an agreement that has a forum selection clause. And here they specifically held that as a matter of public policy, the forum selection clause was invalid. Yes, and what establishes that public policy is this very interesting Idaho law that very uh, quickly sums up that uh, any type of condition in a contract which restricts a party from enforce- enforcing its rights in an Idaho tribunal is, quote, void as it is against the public policy of Idaho, and So Idaho has a specific statute, but before we get to that, let's just make clear that it was an action on the contract the Gemini, I guess, was suing, say they didn't get paid all the money they were entitled to get paid by Smith & Wesson, the gun manufacturer, who I'm sure is struggling. And uh, they were entitled to more money. So they're suing on the contract. The contract has a clause in there. And here's what the contract says. It says that the litigation had to be in the circuit court of the state of Delaware. And interesting, the Ninth Circuit picked up on that. It said nobody, particularly the plaintiff in this case, didn't rely on the fact that the, quote, circuit court of the state of Delaware, close quote, (laughs) doesn't even exist. There is no such court in Delaware, it says. Which I think they were signaling that if that had been the argument, they would have stopped there and ended the discussion there because there is no such court. But they presumed that what they meant was the Delaware court. Yeah, and uh, they said that this is against public policy, and this case really solidifies the fact that if a forum selection clause is against public policy, it's not going to be upheld. There were some other cases that came down while this appeal was pending, I believe, or after the district court made its decision, but before this appellate decision came down, and this kind of relied upon that. Uh, Yay, a son versus advanced China healthcare, a Ninth Circuit case, um, and, and that also said that forum selection clauses that contravene public policy are unenforceable. Right, and I don't know if that was the case specifically you're referring to, but there's also cases that involve California residents bringing class action claims 
under California's Consumer Legal Remedies Act being uh, violating California public policy because that Consumer Legal Remedies Act has a specific statute in there about um, the ability of California courts to decide issues for California residents. I'd love to see California having a anti-forum selection clause statute as strong as Idaho's. I don't think they do. Uh, it's definitely something that should be pursued as legislation. But also, on any case, whether it's on a contract or not, look to the public policy of the forum that you're trying to litigate in to make a determination of whether or not uh, the, the move to another forum would yeah. violate public policy. It, it might not be as blatant as that Idaho statute, but like Brian said, the CLRA has something analogous to that. So, you know, you really look, you might find something that helps you with that argument. We got two more cases to go today. One is called Cole versus Hammond. That's out of the Second District Court of Appeal here in Los Angeles, where we're broadcasting live from right now. And in that case, this case deals specifically with the five-year rule. What's the five-year rule? Uh, five-year rule is codified in CCP Section 583.360 that says a mandatory dismissal is required for someone's failure to um, bring a case to trial within five years. And it's a pretty strong – it's like a statute of limitations oh, type it's, of – I think it's, it's jurisdictional. jurisdictional. Yeah. If you don't litigate your case within five years of filing or have a stipulation to extend the five-year or – have a legitimate stay, and there's a case called Warner Brothers that you can look at for what constitutes a full stay versus a partial stay, that five years is really jurisdictional. And if you don't yeah. if you don't bring your case to trial within five years... We, we've talked about this, this statute and this rule in other instances, and our advice has consistently been, uh, be very careful. Be right. very careful. So there's let's no, talk about the no facts excuses. in this case, Sean. Um, okay, so you have these attorneys here by the name of Neil Gilligan, and Gregory Cole, who obtained a $500,000 judgment against a landlord by the name of Anthony Sheen. Um, In satisfaction of that judgment, they get an assignment of rent from Sheen for a residential property. So their their debtor here assigns them over rent that he's getting from his uh, property that he owns. Um, the, uh, The rent payers here, I guess the tenants here that owe money to uh, Cole are um, Betty and Ruth Hammond, the Hammonds. That's why the case is Cole versus Hammond. So um, at some point, the uh, Cole and his partner or whoever demand that the Hammonds pay their rent directly to them pursuant to the assignment, but the Hammonds refused, and therefore Cole sued, claiming breach of contract and some uh, other related cra- claims. And uh, When did they sue? What year did they sue? They sued in 2011. Right. So this thing's been going on for a long time. And when did they try to bring the case to trial, or when did, they, when did the activity happen that led to the Court of Appeal? Uh, in January of 2018, so because you're seven a years later, yeah. Well, you want me to do? Is that more than five years? That is, let's see, 2018 minus 2011. Those are big numbers, but I think I think that's way more than five years. That's that's so almost you're right. seven years. You're right. And, is it? Is and it a testament to your generation? Wow. But what wow. I want to point out is that what they tried to do, what the what the plaintiff in this case, the two lawyers tried to do, is they tried to beat the punch and file a motion. Or file a dismissal. Well, a voluntary I wouldn't dismissal even call action. it filing a voluntary dismissal. At the hearing on the Hammonds or the defendant's motion to dismiss for failure to bring the case to trial within five years, at the hearing, um, the lawyer for the plaintiff gets up and says, you know what, we, we want to voluntarily dismiss the case. And why is that significant, Brian? 
Why because, were they trying to dismiss Because it? a voluntary dismissal of a case would eliminate the defendant's right to make a claim for attorney, attorney fees. fees. And that was clearly what the defendant was looking for here was to file a motion for attorney fees for failure to prosecute. So the failure to prosecute a case and bring it to trial within five years can result in the defendant, if there's an attorney fee clause or a statute that allows attorney fees, to bring a motion for attorney fees. Lesson number one. Lesson number two is what the court found here is they said you can't voluntarily dismiss a case which is already dead. Yeah. Too late, too bad, too sad. And because it's jurisdictional. It died when the five years it passed. Died, and and yeah. it was too late for them to do it. And so they likened it to trying to file a dismissal after the court has already sustained a demur or after a court has sustained a demur with leave to amend, but the time to amend has passed. You can't do it at that point. The right to voluntary dismissal has passed. Um, the plaintiffs in this case argued that the they had that the uh, mandatory dismissal was not a foregone conclusion. I think the Court of Appeal laughed at them with respect to that. They said that the plaintiff failed to provide any viable basis to oppose the motion because the granting of the motion was a mere formality. So good lessons learned from a little case like that. I think those are the kind of cases you really can take something away with. And that's going to take us to our last case today which is kind of a monster, and we're going to focus on just a couple issues. This is the Adhav versus Midway Rent-A-Car class action case, and it involves that pesky insurance that we all are presented with an opportunity, opportunity in quotes, to purchase at the time of renting a car. And in this case specifically, they said um, the prices are, are, are enormous. They don't reflect an actual... Um, relationship. The, uh, the the rental agency is not properly engaging in the sale of insurance products, that that's a heavily regulated business. So they accused him of fraudulent business practices here and um, accused him of not having the right type of approval from the Department of Insurance. You can tell right away that the Court of Appeal didn't like this case when um, they started making fun of the plaintiff's claim that and they said the plaintiffs received the benefit of any coverage they purchased, did not experience any covered losses, and there's no dispute concerning any adjustment of claims, and that nevertheless the plaintiffs brought a class action against Merck Midway, uh, asserting that they were economically harmed by unlawful and fraudulent business practices. But really what this case is about is they looked at the business of insurance, they looked at the risk that was being undertaken. Now, they did certify this case, so the trial court certified this case. And then after certification, these motions filed followed, which ended up resulting in the dismissal of the case. Yeah, and one of the reasons that they relied upon was that the the rental car company didn't have to charge the same premiums that the insurance carrier or a portion of the premiums that the insurance carrier was charging uh, the rental car company, and there, and there was no requirement for that. There was no issue with the that had to do with the rates filed by the insurance company for the insurance being. They sold. went through the fact that they that this was not unconscionable, that they had actually paid a lot of claims out that there's no pre-qualification basis. So somebody who may be the worst driver in the world, like Shant, or somebody who may be a perfect driver like me, um, go out and what'd you say? Not true. Okay. Go out and and purchase the insurance for the same price, that the claims handling's all wrapped into it. Uh, Although if you add it up, the amount of money that you're paying for insurance would be like you're paying $4,000 a year for, for auto insurance. 
under this. And ultimately, the court said, look to um, the fact that the Department of Insurance regulates the business of insurance. And because they regulate the business of insurance, it's heavily regulated. We don't think as a court we should really wade into this, which I think is garbage because the Department of Insurance, at times competent and at times not competent, um, has never stood in the way of consumers and plaintiffs bringing actions against insurance companies. So I don't like the holding at all. I see where they were going with with their holding, but I think ultimately um, it was the kind of case that maybe was potentially misdirected but could have had a better result. And and this also goes to show that just because you get certification in a case doesn't mean that you're going to succeed on the merits. And before you invest the time and energy into seeking certification, you got to be careful and make sure the merits are going to prevail. More so today than ever before. It used to be certification meant settlement. And today, these defendants are really nope. fighting back. So that's all the cases we got. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to come to you on a weekly basis bringing interesting cases from the Court of Appeal. Uh, the Ninth Circuit, the California Supreme Court, sometimes the United States Supreme Court, which we're still trying to educate Sean about exactly what that is. Not sure where that is, but but thank you. Tell people where they can find us, tell them what they can do in response to our podcast. They can find us at kbklawyers.com. If you have any complaints, you can reach out to the FCC. No, actually, uh, you can leave us feedback, either contacting us directly or comment on Apple Podcasts or uh, through Spotify. And, um, you know, check us out and please subscribe and give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.